You need more than just technology to make a lasting change in this world. And that's why Neon One offers a nonprofit platform that's designed to grow with you, providing software and resources that help nonprofit professionals make their connections that matter. Connections with their peers, connections with their supporters, and connections with their mission. Learn how Neon One makes it easy to design amazing generosity experiences by visiting neonone.com slash weareforgood. Hey, I'm John. And I'm Becky. And this is the We Are For Good podcast. Nonprofits are faced with more challenges to accomplish their missions and the growing pressure to do more, raise more, and be more for the causes that improve our world. We're here to learn with you from some of the best in the industry, bringing the most innovative ideas, inspirational stories, all to create an impact uprising. So welcome to the good community. We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world. So let's get started. Becky, we're smiling so big today. My favorite days are when powerful, strong women come into our house. They inspire, they challenge, and they uplift. And today, I hope everybody is holding on to your rear ends because we're about to talk (laughs) retention, leadership development, and asking a question of, is there or should there be a natural pathway from chief development officer to CEO? And we have brought in two powerhouses to talk about this with you. And it is my great privilege to introduce Adrienne Longenecker, CFRE, and Michelle Flores-Vren, CFRE, to the podcast. I'm going to break them down individually, and I'm going to start with Adrienne. Adrienne serves as the executive director at Colorado River Alliance, where she's driving strategic growth, partnership development. She oversees this incredible, talented, and dedicated staff team. Thank you, Adrienne, for putting that into your bio. That warms my heart. And she's also inspired creativity, connections, and commitment in thousands of colleagues, donors, peers, and community leaders with really incredible organizations like Thinkery, Children's Museum, Austin Pets Alive, and the Central Texas Food Bank. And I just have to say this one little nugget about her because I love it so much, but she was a professional modern dancer training and performing from coast to coast. And I think that is so cool. She's a proud mom to son and two dogs, and we are just delighted she's here and Michelle, just a delight and one of these awesome disruptors that's in the field right now. I hope you all are following both of these women on LinkedIn. But Michelle serves as a chief development officer on the One Star team. She has spent 15 years in the social change space and communications and fundraising. Whoop, whoop. And she leads all the communications and development team. She also serves on boards for Mission Capital and the Association of Fundraising Professionals Global. You might know it as AFP. And she's regularly presenting on marketing strategy and nonprofit innovation. But here's the thing, guys these two incredible women understand about developing leaders. They want to help you progress in a career that aligns with you. We've been talking about how do you prioritize that self-growth, create a plan of intention with your professional development plan, and get in the right lane. And today we're going to dive into it. So thank you, ladies, for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, I'm very excited to be here. Thank you. Well, before we get started, just very quickly, we want to get to know both of you. We want to know your stories and how you got to this work. So, Michelle, I'm going to start with you this time and just give us a little background on Michelle. Yeah, so I always like to start with things that are not on my LinkedIn profile. Smart. Because <laughs> there's actually a lot on my profile. I've built it out pretty well. But one thing that you may not see on there is really how I made my way to nonprofits. I was originally in 
a PhD program and thought I was going to stay in academia, like become a professor. You know, I really still love the university environment. It's such a warm learning and future growth oriented place, which I really love. But in my PhD program, which was in cultural anthropology, I realized once I had enough master's credits that some of the most impactful work that I wanted to do, which at the time was in conservation, was not really happening in academia. (laughs) You know, it was happening through, surprise, surprise, nonprofits. And, you know, it's so um, fitting for Adrian to be here, who also has a conservation background. But I was really, I think, surprised and overwhelmed by all of the amazing impact and day-to-day change that nonprofits are pushing. And once you kind of like uncover that, like you turn over that stone and you see like, wow, there's so much stuff happening. It's really exciting. And I think I've just really maintained that excitement about our sector. And that's what keeps me here. Okay, you are in cultural anthropology. I understand immediately why community is so important to you as well. So love that background. What about you, Adrian? Well, thanks for asking because I haven't thought about this in a while. But when I first started working in nonprofits, it was because I was, as you mentioned, Becky, a professional dancer. So I was dancing and spending a lot of time rehearsing and teaching and then also found my way into representing the organization with which I was dancing at events and helping them write grants. And so I guess that was my very first understanding that there was a profession of fundraising and that there were um, specific ways in which fundraising happened. And so I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. And then I continued on my path of dance and then moved into the for-profit sector for some time and worked in marketing and kind of like Michelle's background in marketing and communication. And then I realized that what drew me to dance and what drew me to my professional work in marketing was about creating experiences, about providing or creating experiences that people would not otherwise have. Dance wasn't a really effective way to do that for a lot of people. So I, again, was like, well, how can I have a meaningful impact and help provide experience or change in people's lives? And that's when I got my first official professional full-time job in a nonprofit, and that was at the Central Texas Food Bank. It was an incredibly meaningful opportunity because as a dancer, I had sometimes struggled with food insecurity, had wondered, hmm, How am I going to make ends meet? How am I going to get food for myself? But for a lot of reasons of privilege, when I was ready to leave that sector and get a quote unquote real job and have enough money coming in to feed myself, it was easy for me. But I realized that that's not the case for many, many, many people. So having the opportunity to work at the food bank, it really was a personal passion of mine. And then again, kind of like Michelle, through that, I realized I uncovered that, turned over that rock and uncovered that there's this huge sector where there is a lot of meaningful change and exciting, exciting work happening. Oh, I like you two humans immensely. (laughs) I really do. You stole my line. I was just like, I'm just like hearting this conversation because... I don't know if y'all intentionally did this, but I'm like, in the way you just story told, you showed us what you value in life. And I feel like as we think about alignment and we think about going deep into the passion areas we want to lift, yes, it's dancing on one level. But when you said experience, I'm like, there's like deeper things that you want to like pour your life into that are value level. And 
I just think coming alive in those is something we're really talking about this year specifically on the podcast. And so I want to start our conversation thinking about finding alignment, thinking about progressing our career in a path aligned with that North Star. And so I want to kick off by asking y'all, tell us about the moment we're right right now, we're in in the sector, and how listeners can help find alignment in their own professional life and work. Absolutely. That is a huge and big question. I'm glad you're asking it. I think it's um, multifaceted. I'll just grab onto one angle. One thing that's really happening, I feel, in our sector right now is we're having these spaces to rethink things that we were comfortable with at one point. And now, due to these spaces of rethinking, we're asking deep questions of like, does this really make sense? Is this really the KPI I want to measure? Am I really leveraging the right points here? And, you know, for someone who's been in the sector for about 15 years, I personally can say I've never seen so many rethinking spaces as we have today. Same. Yep. I do think there's like a flip side of this, though, is it's also (laughs) producing a lot of discomfort, right? I think that instability, people um, would prefer stability, obviously. (laughs) But, you know, change doesn't have to be bad. I think change, when leveraged correctly, can really lead us to somewhere that's way more productive for everyone. Um, So that's what I'm really seeing in the sector. And I just have to kind of give a kudos and shout out here to the community-centric fundraising movement, which I think is a big part of these rethinking spaces. They've really pushed us to ask deep, tough questions that may not have immediately accessible answers, but that's okay. I think moving into asking the questions is the right space to be in. Mm. As we think about our own personal quest for what we want to do in life, we have to like be willing to like ask those questions and sit with them and know that it's not going to be an immediate answer all the time either. Michelle has a perspective that I highly value, which is why I create time in my life to spend one-on-one with Michelle so that I can test some of my beliefs. Are they truly um, a sign of the times? Am I staying current with what's happening? I have this held belief and I don't know that it's still relevant given this very iterative rethinking time that we're in. And I'll just say how appreciative I am that we have found this time and we are rethinking and asking questions and that podcasts like this exist that acknowledge being in the nonprofit sector is hard work. I think 15, 20 years ago when I was interviewing people to work in the nonprofit sector, many of them uh, had a romanticized opinion or perspective of what it might be like, that it was all passion work and that it was going to fill them with joy and happiness every day. And it's still a job. (laughs) There's still challenges and it can be really hard. And so I appreciate your podcast for lifting up the fact that it's not always easy, but there are things we can do to stay aligned with our North Star, which I think in general helps with the flow. I think that's such great tone setting for this conversation. And and I will just confess here, you know, I spent 20 years in the sector and a lot of those years, I felt like I was just kind of coasting. We're doing the same things over and over again. And as a creative type, I know everyone on this podcast conversation would agree, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of um, innovation 
in what we were seeing. There was no challenge. And and I'm here for the challenge. I, I think the question of how we live and work, how we feel in this work needs to be in a complete alignment with our values. And so I want to I want to take this conversation into the practical about we're talking about how do you get in that right role? How do you value align? And you all pose this brilliant question to us, which we love so much, which is how do you move from that CDO role into that CEO role? And I think the reason that this was so intriguing to me, because the question that you asked that was really profound is, is there a natural pathway um, for this? And how are we getting there? Or are people leaving the organization to take another CEO role at another organization? Or are you creating an intentional pathway for your people to rise into? So um, Adrian, I'd love to start with you and, and just say, talk to us and create some space to talk about the lessons you've learned in your careers. What do you feel like served you well with your professional development that's helped like guide these principles of understanding that you have from leader to CEO? There's, wow, talk about multifaceted. As Michelle mentioned earlier, that so many things have come to my mind as I've been preparing for this conversation. And so I'm going to do my best to hone in on three practical, as you mentioned, Becky, ideas. So one being, um, that for me personally, and from a professional development standpoint, I pretty quickly realized that I, as much as as much energy as I spent investing in my subject matter expertise of fundraising, I wanted to spend as much time developing my leadership. And and at one point, maybe twenty years ago, fifteen years ago, it was talked about as like influence without authority. That leadership isn't just management. Um, And so I spent a lot of time investing in qualities of leadership, recognizing those in myself. And Adrian Sargent, um, I attended an AFP-related leadership conference in which Adrian Sargent talked about systems thinking. And that was a huge moment in my life where I realized such an affinity for that concept that it, it bolstered my confidence. And I've for one of the first times, it's like, oh, I do have innate skills that would make me a great leader. Um, so that was one thing. Um, and of course, I'll give a shout out for AFP, where uh, Michelle and I have both served at the local level and now at the global level. Rock and stars. I, I firmly believe, yay! Well, and as fundraisers, for me, serving at the chapter level and at the global level is a is part of what fills my bucket. And that's so important, right? As you mentioned, to be aligned, to continue following our North Star, I had to find ways to fill my bucket. So for me, it was about servant leadership and giving back to my field. Um, And specifically at the chapter level, it provided opportunities for leadership development, really practical leadership opportunities around consensus building. One of the best things I learned about being a leader through my AFP chapter uh, service was it's um, I learned how to come in and acknowledge the past while still talking about a better future. A couple of times I stubbed my toe by coming in and being like, oh, God, we've done it like this for so long. And oh, why have we done that? Realizing later that the five people that spent three years of their life creating that past were now in the room and I had unintentionally offended them. And in a way that, you know, it's different from being a positive disruptor, right? So local uh, professional association leadership, um, investing in 
leadership development and finding someone who really speaks to your uh, innate skills. And then lastly, I'd say it's just hard work, right? It's about resilience and will. And for me, that resilience and will comes from relationships. And so as soon as possible, if you don't already, you know, find your whatever it might be, your text string, your regular book club, the place where you maybe your podcast. But for me, it's a place where I can share and interact with the people who will really tell me if I'm off base or if I'm aligned with where I want to be, you know, that internal and external landscape alignment, finding the people who will let you know, you may feel that way on the inside, but on the outside, here's what you're putting out. Here's what you're putting forward. So that's the other practicum that I I think is so important. It's that relationship of people who can help you align your internal landscape with your external. Oh, you're poking the bear of our values over here. I mean, community (laughs) is everything, you know, it really is everything. And I think we're blessed to be in a position today that there's a lot of ways to have community, which you're illuminating to. And so many people that I feel so closest to have not been able to like physically be in the same room, but that hasn't stopped us from being able to find our people, which is so encouraging, I think, from wherever you're at. So Michelle, I want to give y'all both space to kind of talk a little bit about your journey, just to give some context of what does that leadership progression look like? Because in talking a lot about alignment this year, there is people in the journey that listen to this podcast that are young professionals because we hear from them and they have aspirations to move on. And then there's some people that, you know, want to figure out how to progress in their leadership journey too. So if y'all could kind of give context of what it looked like actually functionally moving through, I think that would give good guideposts for the next part of our convo. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've touched on some of it is, you know, being in values alignment um, with what's most meaningful to you. And a lot of that is being able to tune into your own self and realize like what lights you up, like what excites you. And, you know, this is a little bit of a moving or it's a lot of it of a moving target because, you know, what excites you at 25 may not be the same thing that excites you at 35. And that's okay. That's normal. Like while ago when Adrian was speaking about systems thinking, I was like, oh my gosh, I love systems thinking so much. We just talk about that, you know? So I think that some of it is really being in tune with like what gives you that spark. And we all have that, like whether you're listening to a podcast or watching a movie or even um, lyrics to a song, like there are like these clues that if you tune into them, you can learn more about yourself. And so my number one recommendation for people is to really think about what are the things that move you in that way? And one good thing about working in development and nonprofits in general um, is that you get to do a lot of things, right? Like you put your hands in a lot of different areas. And while I think that that can lead to overwork in a lot of instances, it's also a way to leverage learning experiences where you can quickly realize, do I like doing this thing or do I not like doing this thing? For example, uh, in my earlier years, I was tasked with, you know, a lot of like special event coordination and stuff. And for me personally, I quickly realized like, that's not something that I really love, but it's so interesting in comparison because I have met people and I'm sure you have too, that they really love special events. Like they're all about special events. They like the planning, the details. (laughs) And I'm like, 
good for you. You know, that's not me, <laughs> I'm so glad you're here because I have that deficit. So glad you love Shavar. Yes. <laughs> so really, I think that there's so much value in the comparative experience. And, you know, it can be, it can be frustrating, I think, especially when you're younger and lower on the totem pole, so to speak. You do get thrown a lot of stuff, but make the most out of it and figure out what lights you up. So good. Okay, those are such good answers. And when you're talking about events and doing all the things in nonprofit, John, you know what I'm thinking about is that <laughs> event that we had at that very large house when we showed up I'm to the house that had just desk. been bet. It had just been finished. And we show up to our event, which starts in an hour and the house is not finished. And there's oh, scaffolding everywhere and everywhere. there's paint. <laughs> and here we all are in our LBDs. Well, not John. John doesn't have a little black dress, but, but everybody <laughs> else dressed up and I'm like suit. hauling <laughs> table saws, like hiding them on the outside. This is real life. (laughs) But I think your point is well taken, Michelle, that God bless the people that are in that lane because the sum of all the parts is going to help make the mission move forward. And if that is your dream and you want to be in the events, let's keep you in there and let's have you rise to your fullest potential. But I am very curious about this fundraiser to CEO role. And Adrian, I want to talk to you about it because you've lived this experience. Can you talk to us maybe about some of your unique experiences or inspirational stories of how you transition from that fundraiser seat to the CEO chair? I would love to. And my intention is to end on an inspirational <laughs> note. Wise. But let me just <laughs> put some, let me put some truths out there that, that are, um, so one truth is that, right, in most nonprofit bylaws, it is the board of directors that selects the CEO or this yes. executive director, which means no matter how much the current CEO has developed a leadership pipeline, has cultivated that CDO to take that next step, it will be the board's decision. And therefore, if that CEO is leaving in any type of way that might not leave the board feeling great, the board is probably not going to bless that decision. And in fact, so often I see that a board of directors thinks it is their most important role to hire, fire, and evaluate the CEO. So they are going to go through an exhaustive search. Even if the CEO has said, we have the right person, they're right here. They've been working with us for years. They know the mission. They know the finances. They know the programs. They know all our major donors. You know them. There's trust here. We've got that person. The board's still going to be like, "Ah, you know, we got to do our due diligence. We're going to do a big search. So I would just put that out there. And I would also put that out there by saying anyone who's hearing this, who is on a board of directors, who may be in that position at some point, challenge the thinking. Challenge the thinking that you need to do an exhaustive search. Be creative in providing opportunity for an internal candidate that the executive director or CEO has identified and who has you know, put time and energy into cultivating, give them a chance. That's, that's, so that's one thing. Thank you for saying that. Because don't, I mean, one yes. of the most common things is there's no path and people feel like they have to jump ship. And so you're speaking to this and you're calling it out and I'm here for this discussion. Thank you so much. And I also want to add on, we had a great conversation with Tara Abrahams, who's the board chair of She's the First, and Mona Sinha, who's board chair of Women Moving Millions. And they say having this really integrated 
bond with your board chair and with your board as CEO and making sure that that's an equitable relationship is key to getting that transition right. And the way that Mona and Tara have both mentioned it is, I don't have the power. I look to my ED. I look for my ED to guide me. I don't ever come in there with the agenda. I want to be led because I'm passionate about this work. And that is the right mindset. And those are the board members we want to get into our seats in our organization. So, okay, we had to, we had to emote with that, but keep going, Adrian. (laughs) I'm so happy to hear that those examples exist. Like that's the inspiration Right. right there is that those, those types of board leaders do exist. So that's really exciting. And I'm happy to hear so along my journey, I went to a session at an AFP ICON um, international conference that was all about transitioning from chief development officer to chief executive officer. And it was led by two uh, cisgender white women. And I remember the summary of the presentation was, you're likely going to have to go to a different organization. You're going to probably get paid less. And you're probably going to have to move to a smaller organization where you're going to have to wear a whole bunch of different hats in order to get that inspirational to be a CEO. Said no one and ever. Like, <laughs> <"Horror>, come on. <laughs> I was so bummed to hear all of that. And for one reason or another, that has played out to be my reality, which is fascinating. But also from that, I reflected on the idea that what I was witnessing in my particular community was that in general, white cisgender men were being given opportunities to prove themselves by moving from a program or um, a different role into or fundraising into CEOs. They were given a chance to prove themselves, whereas typically women and people of color had to prove themselves before they were given opportunities. And I got really frustrated by that too. So um, that's why I just want to say again (laughs) that um, I'm hearing stories more and more that these are not the norms and this is not true and that there are opportunities and those opportunities are created by the executive directors and the boards for there to be internal candidates who are cultivated and given opportunities within their organization to move forward. Here's the other thing I did, which I think might be helpful for people as they're going along this path is if you are within an organization that will be going through leadership transition and you believe you are the right person, your executive believes you are the right person to take that next step, but then you're not given that opportunity, ask a lot of questions. Go to the decision makers and ask why so that you know you can have that opportunity to reflect. And then even you know you can sort of size up their responses. Are they just giving the responses that are sort of based on their own limiting and long-term beliefs about how things work? Um, Or, you know, is there something, and it's probably an and, both and, is there something you can take from that lesson about how you either present yourself or spoke about finances or your relationships with the program team, something that you could work on and cultivate in your next job? Okay, lastly, I had one other point that I wanted to, it's probably pretty obvious, but for me here in Austin as a single mom, I wasn't going to go to another city. I'm here. I'm committed to my son and and his uh, life here in Austin. So that was limiting my opportunities in some ways. If, If you have the opportunity to move to different cities, 
I would recommend seeking out large national organizations. I mean, Michelle can speak to this because she's worked for international organizations. And But I've been always, it's fun to watch people who can land within a mission area that's really important to them. And that organization in and of itself has ladders and leadership opportunity just because of the size of the organization. You know, I've worked for mostly regional or local organizations. And that ladder for leadership, just it's not as prevalent perhaps or as rich as organizations and people who can then move to different areas, but stay within one group. Oh yeah, that's so good. So I I think for me, I want to take just a step back and talk a little bit about why this topic is so important to me as someone very active in the sector and the nonprofit sector, not just the development field. Um, as I mentioned, I really get excited about systems thinking. Like that's just who I am. I'm a very like large scale thinker and um, opportunities to affect change on a large scale really excite me. And I see two problems happening, which potentially have the same solution. And we've hinted around this in conversation The first one is we all know there's this large exodus of fundraisers and their roles. This is not a new problem. Like the Chronicle of Philanthropy is writing about this for for a decade. And I swear if I see one more article, like basically with the same headline, I'm just going to cry because we haven't fixed the issue, but we know it is an issue. So the fundraiser turnover is one. And the second one is we definitely have this lack of great leaders to step into these roles. And our friends at the Building Movement Project have done great research around this. In 2019, they reported that about half of the current CEOs in uh, nonprofit roles were either going to move from their position or thinking about it, um, you know, or it, it was going to happen soon. And so if we know that uh, 50% of current CEOs are leaving, And fundraisers are leaving for a variety of reasons, but one being that there is no direct path to where they want to go, right? And so I'm thinking as a systems thinker, could there be a solution here that if we cultivated more intentionality around considering great chief development officers as CEOs, could this fix two problems? And Maybe the answer is no, you know, maybe it's not a great fit. But for me, I think my goal in this conversation is to open the conversation up for us to have dialogue around it. And I really believe that a lot of this intentional pathway has not been formed yet because most fundraisers are women, first of all. I I think that there hasn't really been a provocation or reason, or nobody's really been pushing this idea. But when we think about the roles, the specific roles that chief development officers play, there's a lot of overlap in the skills that they gain that you would need to take those skills to a CEO role. So So true. So true, right? Like, and I think Mm -hmm. when you lay it out, everyone's like, yes, like this makes sense. So I'm just trying to connect the dots here that I think are very obvious, right? Like CDOs have to have a high level of financial acumen. They have to know the numbers. They have to know the programmatic need on all sides of the house, which can be a challenge, right? Because so many programs within a nonprofit, they can be very different. 
But not only do you have to know what those program areas need, you have to build relationships with those program heads to make sure that you have a rapport built with them. So you're already doing that as a CDO. One obvious thing too is you're really interfacing with the board a lot. You're reporting out to the board. You realize like the dynamics of a board. What questions are they going to ask you in a board meeting? Like you, you're just, I think, really queued up in a lot of ways to transfer those skills over. And so, you know, I just want us to think more about why is there not an intentional pathway and should there be one? Hey friends, do you want or need a plan to reach your fundraising goals this year? Or maybe you're looking for a playbook for how to show up with more confidence as a nonprofit leader? Take your skills, confidence, and impact through the roof in 2023. Join us inside We Are For Good's professional development experience and community in We Are For Good Pro. So inside you'll find workshops and live coaching events with Becky and myself, and you'll even see some of your favorite past podcast guests too. Get activated today at weareforgood.com backslash learn. Taking a quick pause from today's episode to thank our sponsor, who also happens to be one of our favorite companies, Virtuous. You know we believe everyone matters, and we've witnessed the greatest philanthropic movements happen when you both see and activate donors at every level, and Virtuous is the platform to help you do just that. It's so much more than a nonprofit CRM. Virtuous helps charities reimagine generosity through responsive fundraising, volunteer management, and online giving, and we love it because this approach builds trust and loyalty through personalized engagement. Sounds like Virtuous might be a fit for your organization. Learn more today at virtuous.org or follow the link in our show notes. Okay, I got to throw another log on that fire, Michelle, because I agree with you. I think you are absolutely on to something. I mean, are your CDOs invited to your board meeting? Are you giving them access to your board members? Is the CEO, you know, taking your CDO along on some of these calls? Where other members, I would say it needs to be beyond the CDO that needs to come to yeah. the board. The board needs to know our staff. But the other thing I want to just address is a little bit of the elephant in the room of you got to pay these people. You mm-hmm. want people to stay. You want them to rise. You want them to achieve. We have a massive pay disparity in nonprofit that is leading us to have such terrible retention. We've talked to people in tech on this podcast who say, look, we're trying to give nonprofit the tech, but it's so difficult when your turnover rate in your organizations is like a rotating door and we just have to keep retraining and retraining. And I feel that. And so I just want all the nonprofit professionals out there to understand we have your back. We know what you're going through. We've been there and we've got to create these systems that lead to greater retention, which is something I want to talk about. And Michelle, I want to pitch this to you first, is I want to talk about retention. Like how can we combine what we're doing to amplify our culture to also keep these employees retained and staying within our missions. We're looking at this study from Nonprofit HR and it has this alarming trend that I don't think anybody's going to be shocked about. It revealed that 45% of responding nonprofit employees indicated that they're going to seek new or different employment by 2025. 
almost half of us are going to be looking for a new job in the next, you know, year and a half. So Michelle, talk to us a little bit about your thoughts about how leaders can invest in the talent they already have to prevent this from happening. And then like, how does culture play into that? I'd love your thoughts. Yeah. So I would say, you know, the number one thing I feel like we're not talking about that we could be doing is investing time in laying out KPIs to gauge fundraising success that are not just annual dollars raised. And that takes time, right? Like I have a social science background. Like I I understand like you have to really spend some time thinking about like the metrics and, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? But we can do this. And I think, you know, with the tech platforms we have, whether whatever CRM you have, like you, you can begin to survey donors, survey internally, and really gauge different kinds of KPIs. I want us to spend more time thinking about what really matters the most for us to measure. And, you know, for me, I think we often lose time to ask these questions because we're so talking about like chat GPT and AI. Right? <laughs> Those are important. Like I get it, but like we really got to like focus on cultural things. And for me, I think the KPI measurement is a cultural thing because it's very indicative of your mindset, like your mindset of what you think is the most important. And that's a very capitalistic way of thinking, right? Like the most money you have, that is how successful you are. Like that is... Uh, infinite growth. It's like what we're trying to do. And it's like, but is it though? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I don't know. Like let's, let's get creative and really think about other things we can gauge. It takes time, but I feel like that is the base layer of the lasagna that needs to be laid down first. And then we build, (laughs) you know, AI and stuff on top of that. She's Italian. She's loving this analogy. Yeah. Every time (laughs) Italian analogies always land. Let me just hop in there to, to just affirm what you were saying, because I I did have the privilege, I guess, of working for a boss that saw some of those metrics that it's like doing some of the action, showing up, going out consistently, doing some of the things is also just as meriting because you can't control the results always. And so you have to be in that dichotomy. But I will say, I think we sacrifice our long game possibilities because we're so focused on hitting these KPIs that focus on this annual, like at December 31st, everything resets. It's just kind of exhausting of a place paradigm to be in when nothing in the world works like that, you know? So thank you for, for lifting that. Cause I think that is a very tangible thing that leaders could talk about. So Adrian, I want you to answer that too. Oh, I'm so pumped up. Doesn't Michelle get (laughs) you? Yeah, she does. Love this woman. Love this woman. Yes. One of the words she used, Michelle, about just putting this conversation forward. We have this mass exodus of CEOs, which I've been hearing about for a long time. So those CEOs really do need to go ahead and get on out of the way in some cases. Um, and then this churn of CDOs. And you said we just need to be considering, considering if CDOs are the right path and the right person to become the executives. I like that word choice because considering that does fall to those people who are decision makers, which is often the board. So there are great, as you know, like great professional development opportunities that AFP is providing around leadership. I think individual fundraisers are doing a lot to invest in their own leadership, but it's the other people that are part of the formula that need to be considering this. Yeah, this obvious answer. Again, Michelle, what you mentioned about how many of the skills that fundraisers currently have, relationship, financial acumen, understanding the programs and the program evaluation 
um, the relationship with the board. It's an obvious, obvious connection. Um, also, fundraisers know how to tell the story of the impact of contributions, tell the story of the impact of the mission. And let's face it, the best executives are spending 50 to 65% of their time fundraising. Yeah. So I just wanted to like really add a, as you said, add a log to that fire of what Michelle was saying. I love it. So building a culture of retention. Uh, as a chief development officer, again, Michelle's just nailed it. It's like, we need to redefine growth. I think of growth as sort of that, you know, it's like that lotus that's just kind of always mm. unfolding. It's not so linear. It's not such a straight line upwards in the diagonal. So KPIs that focus on retention and engagement. Long time ago, I worked for a really successful development team and we evaluated our activity level, not just our closes, right? It's like, how many conversations are we having? And so again, I think... Um, so many development professionals are leaving the field because of the unrealistic expectations. So let's redefine those expectations, focus on KPIs that are around retention, engagement, relationship. So building a culture of retention as an executive now, like it's kind of a fun new way to think about it. Much of it translates like what are our KPIs for the whole organization? How are we valuing relationship within our own team, within our program partners, and then, of course, within the communities in which we interact and serve. Um, so that's a re redefining KPIs, redefining growth. I mean, I just heard from a board member, if you're not growing, you're dying. Oh, geez. <laughs> stay, in the, <laughs> stay in the same is the same as dying. I'm like, okay, there's something so linear about that thought, but I got to embrace it. I got to work with it. And so I got to redefine growth, right? Like, what does it mean to grow? Um, I've also found that building a culture of retention for this particular organization that I'm so fortunate to lead is about connecting our very small staff with opportunities to be involved in key decisions for the organization. So we're going through a strategic planning process, 30-year-old organization, but first very official, comprehensive strategic planning process. And I was sitting at my desk one day, writing the email to the two board members that are involved in the selection of the consultant. And I was like, huh, why am I the only staff member? And I popped out of my desk, went to our program director, and I was like, Katie, I think you should be a part of picking the consultant. I think you should be a part of all of the strategic planning process from this very beginning moment, not just part of the surveys and part of the conversations. And she kind of lit up. Look, I'm getting a little emotional just thinking about it. But I was like, dang, that was a good idea I had. So um, uh, we also went through a whole conversation about hybrid work and days in the office. And it was a little laborious at one point. But a couple of days later, I got an email from one of the teams that was like, hey, I was just talking to a friend who works for a large tech company, and I realized how fortunate I am to be a part of the decisions that are going to impact my daily life at work. So thank you. Okay. We're doing Do you remember from time. the 90s, the Be Like Mike um, campaign? <laughs> be I'm like Adrian. CEOs, <laughs> please be like Adrian. Oh if, if, we keep saying, look at your table. Who's not at the table? 
pull them in. If you have privilege, pull somebody up to the table. If the, if it's already full, give up your seat. If this is not the right table, create another table. And these are the things that are going to help move us forward. And I want to give everybody listening just a little mom hug here and say, if you are working in this mindset of building a retention culture, which I think is brilliant, is such a brilliant strategy, this isn't, this isn't a, a heavy haul for us. We get retention. We fundamentally, more than any other sector, understand what retention is. We need to take those principles that we're applying to our donors and we need to apply them to our people. And I cannot imagine the compounding effect. And I'm not just talking about, um, you know, attrition. I'm not talking about people staying in the job, but we're talking about people feeling seen, being loyal, feeling that they have, that they matter, that there is worth in what they're delivering. There are so many outputs to this kind of thinking. And it, again, is only going to compound and give abundance to your organization. So I am here for all of this. Ladies, you have gotten me fired up. And you know how much we love story. We believe it is the great catalyst of how people connect, remember each other, and build empathy. You both have had these storied careers in nonprofit. And I just want to ask you, and I'll start with you, Michelle, first. What's a story about philanthropy that has stayed with you? It doesn't have to be one within your organization. It could be one growing up. But whatever it is, big or small, we would love to hear yours. Yeah, so mine is fairly recent. And um, it starts out, you know, with a little... Debbie Donner tone, but I promise I'll bring us back up. You know, I think that um, being in any career for a long time, or like I've been doing this for over 10 years, a frontline fundraiser, you begin like to, you know, things begin to fall apart. There's cracks. You're like, oh, like, is this really what I want to do for a long time? Like, why am I even doing this? But I recently had a philanthropy experience through my role as chief development officer at One Star. And unfortunately, in our statewide service area, we had to open up a fund for the Uvalde school shooting that happened last mm. year, which I'm sure we all remember. And I think even when we think about that accident incident, that we all are just devastated recalling the memory of it, as am I. And for me, it was personally impactful because that's the community that I come from. I grew up in Uvalde and went to elementary school there as well. Oh, so being asked to, or having the opportunity rather, I think to use the skill set that you have to raise funds for a community that really needed your help, probably in the worst time they have ever been in, was a unique position for me. And I think one thing I can say this now, I mean, at the time, you know, you always obviously have to process a lot of the things that you're dealing, seeing, um, dealing with. But now, you know, it's almost almost been a year. I can really say that it really reminded me of the power of philanthropy. And it was a unique role to where, you know, I got to work with Fortune 5 companies, but also the smaller individual donors, people who just wanted to give you what they could give you out of their paycheck. And, you know, they would tell me like, when I get paid next month, like I'm going to send you more money. And oh, it really w allowed, I think this breadth or expanding view of like the power of philanthropy. And I think, you know, that like intellectually, but it reminded me like seriously that every act of generosity matters. And in this yes. role, being a facilitator of that, 
is a sacred space to be in. Wow. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, I, I still have a very hard time just hearing the word Uvalde and not having an emotional reaction. So thank you for sharing so personally, Michelle. Adrian, what about you? I'm so glad you shared that story, Michelle. Mm-hmm. She had talked with me a little bit about it at one point and had couched it in. When the time is right, I'm going to share that more widely. I don't know when that will be. And so I I wondered if this might be a moment. And so it's such a beautiful story because of your connection to that community and because it illustrates what I associate Michelle's legacy as being is that every gift matters. You know, every gift, every amount. You've really raised that point here in Austin, and I see you raising it at the global level, and it, it's it's no longer a new idea, but um, because of your work, I think everybody is really on board and gets that. So I have thought so long and hard about this question because I have so many amazing um, just experiences with philanthropy um, and, and with people giving their time and their talent as well as their treasure. Um, And I guess I'll just tell a story of my mom, um, because in addition to being in Austin committed to raising my son here, my um, elderly but still very active mom lives right around the corner from me. So I'm that sandwich generation where I'm kind of keeping an eye on, on, on two folks. And so my mom's a big part of my life and has been for a long time. And, and she's like a natural born fundraiser. <laughs> my gosh, that woman will ask anybody for anything at any time. And it's because she's so passionate. And not only does she uh, like gracefully request funds, but then she works, you know, directly with people every day to help them, you know, get food or rent payments or electricity payments. And so she tells these stories. And uh, she was telling a story just about a a person that she had been uh, talking with and had met with a donor and a donor had provided just the right amount of money um, that then my mom was able to talk to this person and say, don't worry, you know, like your electricity is covered for the next month, you know, and, and the person thanked my mom. And my mom did such a good job of reminding me as she's telling me this story that it's like we as fundraisers often like we get that magic from kind of both ends where we're getting to hear the stories of the impact of giving and the impact of a person being philanthropic and how much that opens their heart. And then we often get to see and be a part of the impact story and being a part of communities that are uplifted. And then in turn, those communities become philanthropic and they want to give back or give to others. And so, again, I think of this kind of lotus unfolding and that so often we as fundraisers have that amazing opportunity to be in the middle. And and I think no one embodies that more than my mom and these stories of her being in the midst of, in the midst of these amazing moments that where she's just a conduit to that goodness. You too. We are con. We are goodness, goodness conduits, right? That. We are good. <laughs> I mean, I just feel impact uprising is what we call it. But I think that both your stories are like gutting me of just like this is what it's all about, and this is why it's worth kind of dealing with a lot of the crap we talked about today to get there. You know, because it is really sacred work at the core, and together we can like make this a better, more equitable place. It's going to keep, take a lot of conversations like y'all have led us into today. So I'm just thank you feeling the gratitude of this moment. And I'm really excited that I get to ask you each for a one good thing, just a 
piece of advice to kind of close out and round out this conversation today? Michelle, I'm going to start with you. What's your one good thing? Yeah. So my thing is a quote that I recently came upon, but I want to just bestow it upon others. I think it's relevant for our times. And it's an Albert Einstein quote. And it says, you cannot use an old map to explore a new world. And I feel like we are very much in like this new world and new worlds are exciting. So, you know, let's create some new maps together. Whoa. Okay, I love that. <laughs> Good luck following that, Adrian. <laughs> Gosh, yeah, exactly. Michelle's incredible, right? A quote that's so meaningful. My one good thing has been some old 90s music. Oh, girl, you're after my heart. And called my Book of Love. And <laughs> so much of our work is about love. So I just uh, I encourage everyone to listen to some Book of Love. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> and actually, that's not one I know well. So I'm going to go check it out. I, I really just want to thank you both from the bottom of our hearts for this very honest, um, impactful, but also empathy-based conversation. It's not lost on me that we kind of closed out this conversation with you all talking about things that are very personal to you. Michelle, your story about Uvalde. Adrian, your story of this ripple that your mother has cast. And this work is personal. It is deeply meaningful. We are we need to remind ourselves often that while it is incredibly challenging, the rich rewards that we are privileged to get to see and to connect is such a gift. So I know our community is going to want to connect with you guys. Michelle, thank you. You've already been in the community. Adrian, love that you're here now. We've saved the softest cushion for you. Come on into our house. But how can people connect with you? Where are you on socials? And yeah, let's find ways that people can go further with you. I'll start that time. Yeah, because Michelle is, uh, again, a mentor and a coach to me and reminds me that I need to be more active on social media. (laughs) So I have a LinkedIn presence. I have a Facebook presence and an Instagram presence. um, And I intend to the 2023 will be my year of reengaging with my social platforms as as inspired by Michelle. But thank you all so much for letting me be a part of this. I really, really enjoyed it. This is given me a big lift for my day. And and again, I encourage everybody to check out a little book of love because as fundraisers, you're all writing a book Mm. of love. Okay, Michelle, how can everybody connect with you? And before you start, we got to give a shout out to Evan Wildstein who connected us to Michelle, who is also one of our servant leader like oracles in the community. (laughs) So thank you, Evan, as well. And Michelle, how can people connect with you? Okay, I love defining Evan as an oracle. I agree with that label. (laughs) And Evan and I both share a love for LinkedIn. So the easy way to connect with me is on LinkedIn. I'm very active on there and happy to chat more about all things nonprofits. You women are absolutely incredible. Thank you for your work in this sector. Please go find Adrienne, Michelle, go deeper. Friends, we are rooting for you. Let's get an alignment on our career and let's build each other up and retain each other. This is our future and we want to be, we want it to be a world that we want to live and work in. Thank you for reminding us of that. Hey friends, thanks so much for being here. Did you know we create a landing page for each podcast episode with helpful links, freebies, and even shareable graphics? Be sure to check it out at the link in this episode's description. You probably hear it in our voices, but we love connecting you with the most innovative people to help you achieve more for your mission than ever before. We'd love for you to join our good community. It's free, and you can think of it as the after party to each podcast episode. You can sign up today at weareforgood.com backslash hello. 
One more thing. If you loved what you heard today, would you mind leaving us a podcast rating and review? It means the world to us and your support helps more people find our community. Thanks, friends. I'm our producer, Julie Comfort, and our theme song is Sunray by Remy Borsboom. Rabbit fans have always powered the We Are For Good podcast, but now Rabbit fans can get even more goodness and access by joining Good Friends. It's our listener support community for the We Are For Good podcast. Good Friends comes with perks, exclusive episodes with John and I, including The Good Brief, our new monthly cliff notes of the greatest takeaways and lessons learned from that month, and exclusive AMA episodes where we answer your burning questions and tap our community of experts. Join now or learn more at weareforgood.com backslash friends. We can't wait to see you inside. That's weareforgood.com slash friends.